Thanks for listening in on this week's episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller. Today, I'm sharing a conversation I had with one of my favorite Christian authors and speakers, Sarah Bessie. Sarah is a woman so captivated by Jesus who will stop at nothing to follow Him and be an example for others to do the same. Through the sharing of her own journey, Sarah creates such a safe place for people examining their faith, taking it apart, and reclaiming it in a life-giving way. As you'll hear in our conversation, Sarah's voice has been an encouraging, inspiring source for me in my current journey of walking through a season of deconstructing parts of my own faith. One of those topics being the roles of women in ministry. Now, I know this is a controversial topic, but I encourage you to stick with us and listen in to hear how Sarah's story of finding Jesus helped her discover what it means for us to be equal in His kingdom. We also talk about the Evolving Faith Conference and what it means for the gospel to be good news for everyone, not just those who look and act like us. You may want to buckle in and grab a strong cup of coffee for our conversation. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me on the Her Story Speaks podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I will introduce you with just kind of the basic resume stuff um, that you are a best-selling author of now three books. You're a sought-after speaker, uh, you are a former award-winning blogger, and you are the curator and host of the Evolving Faith Conference. So a lot of things um, and a lot of reasons that I know and love your voice and your writing. But can you just tell us who Sarah Bessie is, not those things, like at home, where you live, those kind of things. Oh, sure. Um, Well, uh, I live in Canada. So I live just in a city just outside of Vancouver, British Columbia, and um, it's called Abbotsford. We've lived here for a while, but I actually grew up more on the prairies in Canada, Um, which would be like North of North Dakota, like that part of, of, of the world. But my husband and I have been married for... I'm going to get the number wrong, 19 years, okay. <laughs> not quite 20 yet. So yeah, 19 okay. years. And we have four children. Um, they go from uh, teenagers to preschoolers. So certainly no lack of uh, big feelings in our house at times. And um, yeah, I think that. That sounds like the basics. I know you're a lot more than that, but that's kind of the yeah. basics of your everyday who you yeah, are. Exactly. Exactly. And so we have a, a pretty busy household and life here, but um, it's a lot of fun too, right? It's been fun. I think as the kids are, are growing up and getting older, they are getting you know much more engaged even in the fullness of our life. And um you know, like the other things of writing and ministry and conferences and things, it's, it's fun to see them engaging with that uh, part of our life as well and not feeling like they're two separate parts yeah. of my life, but they're very integrated now. So it's, it feels good to have that. Yeah, I can totally see that. I mean, I know just with my own, I have two daughters, 10 and 16, but the 16, almost 17 year old, like, I think she's been so instrumental in my faith journey and my own deconstruction this last year. And, um, took her to the Evolving Faith Conference, and she's who I was in Nicaragua with last week. So it's amazing how our kids just bring something totally different to our journey and change things completely. Absolutely. That makes me glad to think that she was there. She was, yeah. All uh, she's, uh, You and her have been very instrumental in my deconstruction. Let me just say that. <laughs> I don't know whether to say you're welcome or I'm sorry. So <laughs> could go, little, could go either little, way. Absolutely. A little, a little of both, I'd say. So yeah, I think so. Let's start... It's talking about deconstruction in your own story. In one of your books, you said, I've heard that most of our theology is formed by autobiography. This is true in my case, and maybe it's true for you too. So today I want to dive into your story and your journey and your wondering and where you're at today. So if you can take us back 
to the beginning, your childhood, your faith, and learning that with your parents. Um, just take us back. Sure. Um, well, it, a lot of this, you know, my origin story when it came to being introduced to the Christian faith is because my parents are first generation Christians. They came to faith um, when they were in their mid thirties and I was a child at the time. And so I remember very clearly the life before and life after. Mm-hmm. Um, and this experience of becoming Christians together actually has deeply shaped our relationship and our faith journey, because in a lot of ways, we grew up together, you know, we came to faith together. And so some of my earliest memories of um, learning about Jesus and those sorts of things happened alongside of my parents, um, which was really beautiful in a lot of ways. And so, I mean, the parts of of, um, community that I grew up in were very much post-Christian. I think you know, when I look back on it, I don't recall ever knowing a whole lot of people who went to church, really. I mean, it wasn't even that my parents had walked away from faith. Their their parents had not. I mean, it was like my my parents' grandparents were the last generation who had, you know, been going to church. And that was typical for our entire community. And so when my parents came to faith, um, you know, it was in a small, happy, clappy, very organic, charismatic renewal kind of congregations that were literally like 10 people in a basement. Like, it was, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, not, not, I think we didn't know where we fit in the larger story. We didn't know there were other kinds of Christians. We didn't know that there were, you know, what, what anything was, right? In a lot of ways, we were just a, a whole community of misfits who were just on a first name basis with resurrection. We were just so incredibly happy to meet Jesus. And so, Which is, uh, when you look at it, like the purest form and maybe where we need to get back to. But. It was very innocent. I mean, <laughs> yeah, there were definitely yeah. some drawbacks, some over-realized eschatology for sure. sure, sure. <laughs> a couple of tambourines at a time, not a great, not a great time. <laughs> but, you know, it was very innocent and it was very um, true. And I am very grateful for the churches of origin and the ways that that kind of shaped and formed our faith. And of course, you know, things uh, shifted, you know, you grow up, you, you move into some more maturity and some more understanding. And, um, you know, we ended up in a, a strain of Christianity that um, is nowadays kind of referred to as the prosperity gospel, but back then okay. it was called word of faith. Okay. Um, And so that was kind of an origin point for me, you know, in a lot of ways, it was beautiful that gave me a language for saying that God is abundant, that God is good, that God is is for your, your thriving in your health and in your, your mind and in your body. And I mean, all these other things that were a really beautiful and loving picture of God. Um, But at the same time, it meant that then I had no language for suffering. And I had no language for unanswered prayers. And so if it's not God's fault, you know, which is how a lot of people, if maybe they grew up in a tradition that is more reformed, um, you know, where everything's preordained and everything is, is decided and, and that, you know, all, all things pass through God's hand, and, you know, then you often will grapple with is, is God actually good or, you know, how, how you know, did God give me cancer, you know, like those sorts of right. things. Those were so, not conversations that we had to have. Our conversations were that your faith wasn't strong enough. You weren't right. good enough. You were the one who fell down on the job um, because God obviously wants to heal you or God obviously wants, you know, this, that, or the other thing. And so, yeah, it ended up being a very, um, I think, toxic environment in a lot so of ways. So at what point did you start realizing that? Was that 
early in the faith that you started realizing, okay, what about people that aren't being healed or people that are suffering? At what point did you start realizing the the discrepancy there? You know, I think that I always kind of had an inkling that God was more than mountaintop experiences. God was more Mm -hmm. than you know, the, that big, uh, Barbara Brown Taylor talks about it being like a lunar, uh, lunar Christians versus solar Christians. And we were staunchly solar Christians. Mm-hmm. Like there was, there was a lot of light. There was a lot of certainty. God existed in victory and in narratives of victory. And so there was always that little corner of my heart, I think that knew that that was not the full picture of who God was, right? Um, but you- let alone of how we are loved. But I think the biggest altar where I really ran hard into that um, was through my, I think like a lot of people, you can sit at the threshold of your questions and have them be very theoretical, right? You can sit there at that threshold of that, that place into the wilderness and say, well, I'd like to talk about what I think about the origins of the universe and evil and, you know, what, what, what I think about the atonement and you, know, <laughs> you gather right. in pubs and throw around all sorts of big, heady ideas and exciting things and wrestling. But the moment when it becomes your grief, your proximity, your story, I think that that is often the thing that will propel you over that threshold into that wilderness of saying, well, nothing makes sense. Right. I don't know what I think about any of those things. And for me, that happened at the at the altar of um, miscarriages and loss that my husband and I were experiencing. Because I did all the things right. I did all the things I knew to do. And yet still, this kept happening to us. And there was a sense for me of saying that I felt very forgotten by God. Right. Because my... My view everything right. Yeah, exactly. My view of God was such that I'm doing everything right. If this, then that, Jesus. And so when that is turns out not to be the case, you either think that God has disappeared or you begin to shift your position to say, maybe I just haven't had a clear line of sight to God. Maybe I'm the one who didn't have the full story. And so I know in your book, you say, in the book Out of Swords, you say in your 20s, you decided to stop being a Christian and you didn't want to be associated with the church. So was this prior to the time of your questioning during the miscarriages? I think that was all happening at the same time. time. My husband was in full-time vocational ministry at the time. You know, we were, I think that in a lot of ways, you know, it was, it was probably super awkward for for a lot of people who were around us in that season of life. I just really felt like that experience of loss and miscarriages cracked open my heart to more stories than my own. And I think that that's what often ends up happening when your heart breaks, everybody tumbles in. And all of a sudden I couldn't stop seeing all the people for whom this story was not true. All of a sudden I couldn't stop seeing that, well, if it's not true for someone in Darfur, then maybe it's not the gospel. And what about this? And what about immigration? And what about war? And what about economic policy? And what about LGBTQ people? And what about, and so all of a sudden all these things kind of converged all around that heartbreak. And I think that that was the origin point for me being like, I just need to take a minute. Isn't I don't it think inter- I can do this anymore. Yeah. I mean, isn't it interesting? Like that's kind of where my last year has been. All of these things at once have kind of come flooding in, like with it's the stories lot. on the podcast and just the, oh, the political administration that's enforced, right? Just all of these things. And I'm just like, it's all here and I don't know what to do with it. And yeah. also one thing in your story I want to talk about that I can also relate to is you moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma when you were, and that's where I moved five and a half years ago in the Bible Belt. And I think that's been part of my deconstruction as well. Like, 
Oh, tell someone to do that to a person. (laughs) (laughs) You had no, you had no escape, my dear. It's so true. I'm like this with the Trump administration. I'm like, what in the world do I even believe to be true anymore? My heart really goes out to you and to everyone who's in this stage of life right now or in this moment, because I mean, my deconstruction and all of this happened, you know, almost 20 years ago. Like Mm -hmm. this is... This was around the, the time of September 11th, the Iraq war. It felt like nothing could get worse than right. what it was in that moment. But I mean, good God in heaven, if I had to do all of it, right? Now, how naive we were, right? Yes, I, yes. I <laughs> My wish heart that goes out to you. <laughs> so, but I do find that so interesting that you moved here. And tell me, like, bat, we're backing up a little bit, but because of the similarities in our stories with that, I'm just like, how did you end up here and how... Because some people that listen to this podcast will be like, what are they talking about? Why would Tulsa do that to them? Because I have a lot of friends that listen that were born and raised in Oklahoma. And it's like, what are they even talking about? So tell me how you ended up here and why this started to kind of unravel a few things. Well, I think that, you know, it's not necessarily Tulsa, obviously. I know. It's a lovely city, but (laughs) marvelous people there. And and a lot of people who, you know, I have connected with over the years as well and found a lot of kindred spirits there, which is, which is great. Um, But at the time when I was coming into Tulsa, um, of course, I had grown up in Canada and um, was getting ready to go away to university or go to university. Not a lot of Canadians usually go away. Usually you stay fairly close to home. And uh, just kind of came across my desk. I don't really know why or how. Um, I think it's because of our connection to the Word of Faith movement Mm -hmm. um, about Oral Roberts University. Yes. And so, you know, I just kind of, you know, thought it would be fun to see what sort of scholarship I would get. Um, You know, showed up one day, took an SAT because they do that in the States and you know, that's not something we, we did in, in Canada. And I was like, sure, I'll take your test. And so just kind of, anyway, a long story short, I ended up saying, oh, I'll go to ORU for a year and have, okay. a, have an adventure. I'll go okay. to the United States. I'll go to a Christian school and it'll be, be lovely. And I'll get to meet some people and I'll have an adventure and then I'll come home okay. and finish off university properly. Um, but ended up enjoying it, you know, right. and, and really having a, a great experience at ORU in a lot of ways, not a perfect experience, but certainly an illuminating one. Uh, met my husband there. And then that was more incentive, of course, to stay put. And so graduated from there. Oh, you did. Okay. So you graduated from ORU. You stuck out the floor for four years. Okay. Did the whole dog and pony show. And so, and of course that was, um, you know, the epicenter, I think in a lot of ways of the movement of the word of faith lifestyle of the Mm -hmm. expect a miracle narrative, um, you know, that was very dominant from the stage and from the administration. But I was really um, pastored and led by both staff and students on the ground who quietly questioned and illuminated and made me think deeper about those sorts of things. And so it actually ended up being a really positive experience. I mean, not everybody can say that. Um, And I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, it could have gone either way, but sure. for me, it was, it was a, it was a good experience there for the most part. At that time, is, did you start, so you, it was a positive experience. You weren't questioning the church. I know you said that later in your life, Jesus was replaced with the industrial church complex. And it feels like the more you moved out into the church culture, the less you heard about Jesus. So yeah, did you absolutely. start feeling that then? Oh, totally. Or, I, you okay. know, I think I felt that probably from, I think because as well, there was this, there was a really strong culture shock for me mm-hmm. of coming to Tulsa because I, again, I had grown up in Western Canada where, I mean, literally if you are 
a charismatic Christian, like you, we either know you or we know someone who knows you. Like mm-hmm. it is, we can play six degrees of separation in two or less. Like it's just not hard. And right. so our churches are smaller, um, you know, in a lot of ways. And so coming to a place like Tulsa that had these massive mega churches and we're at the, you know, peak of the church growth movement starting yes. to really take off. And I just was dazzled and overwhelmed, I think, by, by the industrialness of church there. Mm-hmm. And that was where we lived for, you know, eight, eight or nine years. My husband and I lived within that world and within that environment um, that felt very um, corporate. Right. Yes. In ways. And I think what I've noticed, like I said, we've lived here five and a half years, moved here from Iowa, went to a okay. very inclusive Lutheran church there. And then coming to the Bible Belt, we were excited. Like you just think, oh, there's churches everywhere. Everybody loves Jesus. And I'm not saying they don't, but it's just, I've been shocked at how inclusive and exclusive it is. And I think that's what's just come to and I've seen more in the forefront. And mm-hmm. I think why your story speaks so much to me about ev- Jesus wants everybody at the table and questioning just a lot of the rigidity that's, that's taught here um, yeah. has been. Well, I think quite- that there's a lot of unspoken rules. Yes. And un, un, unacknowledged rules about how we are, how we, how we be, how we, you know, and I don't think that's exclusive to Tulsa. I think that's how a lot of evangelical culture is, has, and has become, um, where it becomes more about voting in a certain way, more about, you know, appearances at times, more about ticking a list of boxes for right opinions, um, you know, as decided by a certain group of people who are usually always at the center. Um, The dominant narrative is one that is straight and white and male and privileged, you know, and so then everything is structured around that. And so I don't think that that's exclusive to any, you know, geography or denomination. I think that that's kind of a symptom of where we have landed as a church right now. And what would it look like to redraw the center towards the margins? Yeah. What would it look like for the people for whom the story is not necessarily true? That's right. And I love when Jen Hatmaker spoke at the conference because like her, I could just, I mean, except for that being a woman bit, I am upper class, white, you know, like I fit in the box. Yeah. So I'm, I'm good. So why should <laughs> it's I? Built, <laughs> it's built for people like us. Right? Right. And so honestly, it's easier just to be like accepted that way. Easier for like my little comfort zone. But then having yeah. my 16 year old daughter that is Again, she fits in the box, but she thinks out of that box and is the one that's questioning everything here because she's gone to other countries, worked with immigrants, has friends, you know, so it's like that is what's shaken things up for me. So with you going back to your story of leaving the church, tell me about that time in your life because you had enough of it. Like you said, your husband was in ministry. You were just, you had enough. And so you left the church. So tell me about that season of wandering in the wilderness for you. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, um, I think that sometimes we're too afraid to let people go. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a lot of fear that surrounds a narrative of deconstruction um, where people say, well, if you leave, you might never come back. If, if this happens, we could lose you forever. You're on a slippery slope. If this, then who knows what's next. Um, and I have just felt, I think I, I knew it instinctively then, but 
in the years since, especially walking alongside of people who have um, found themselves in a wilderness, who have found themselves in a, in a stage of deconstruction, whether they wanted to be there or not, to be honest. I mean, you know, even at the conferences you, you talked about, um, you know, Robert Brown Taylor talked about how sometimes Jesus will drag you into the wilderness, yes. you know, against your will, like you didn't necessarily want to be there. And so in a lot of ways, um, that narrative of fear around it, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. It doesn't do anybody any favors because I have found that usually, almost always, the thing that we are fearing is actually an invitation from the Holy Spirit, Mm. that Jesus is present in the wilderness, that it is not an absence of God, that instead it is an altar where we really begin to experience the intimacy with the Spirit because we stop being intellectually and spiritually dishonest with ourselves and with other people. And that is a place where you live unveiled, right? Where there isn't, you're not setting up all of your idols and all of your certainties and all of your index cards with the right answers and your formulas for God that are keeping you from God. In a way, you have to let God unbecome in order for God to become near to you again. And for me, that was the case. Walking away from church, I thought I would never go back. Um, it was probably a good six or seven years, you know, that I just was like, I'm good. (laughs) And I think I was very surprised when continuing to follow Jesus outside of institutional religion, um, just kept leading me back over and over and over again to the body of Christ, how the ones who left the gospel, I began finding out there in the wilderness. And I think that that's the thing that you begin to realize is you're not as alone or as crazy as you think. There's a lot of people. I feel like you're speaking to me, Sarah. I'm like sitting here tearing up, like I'm having a phone conversation with a friend because it's true. I mean, it is fear why you don't want to let go of some of those things or Mm -hmm. disassociate. And it's a hard, unless you're in it or have done it, like walk through it, you just don't even know. It's profoundly disorienting. I mean, Uh because I think the things that you, um, one friend of mine likens it to, she does a lot of relief work and she likens it to when they go into a community that is being hit by a hurricane, for instance, and all the street signs are gone and the street lights are gone and the houses are down and, and you just literally could be standing in your very own neighborhood and you don't know which way is up because all the markers you use to set your course of your life are gone. Right. And in a lot of ways, that disorientation is how it feels in a life of faith when a hurricane kind of sweeps through. Yes. You know, whether, no matter what the origin point was for that, whether it was theological or it was political, um, a lot of people end up in this place because someone they love is also there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, then at that point, you're just looking for markers, right? You're looking for something to orient yourself to. And uh, for me, the thing I found in the wilderness that was worth orienting myself to was Jesus. Mm. Yes, that that's what I have in my notes next. Worthwhile. I was like, yeah, she, you hung on to Jesus and clung on to what, what did he say? And tell a little bit about that. Like, I, I encourage people to read all of your books, but Out of Sorts is where a lot of this story is. And you talk about how you just went to the Gospels and what, what did Jesus say? So you left church, but you didn't become an atheist and say, I'm done. You were like, you were clinging on to Jesus. To tell a little bit about that, that phase of your story. Yeah, I mean, I think I was, had a lot of doubts. I mean, I probably would have characterized myself as fairly staunchly agnostic at that point. I didn't know what okay. I thought about anything. Mm-hmm. But I think that there was a point... Um, It's quite dear, actually, now when I look back on it, but there was a moment where I 
Stis was like, I'm not, I can't be a Christian any longer. I, I do not subscribe to this politically or um, ecclesiastically or in any capacity. I do not want to be aligned with, with the name Christian anymore. So I think Jesus is pretty cool. I'll call myself a Jesus follower. There you go. Probably took <laughs> me about six months to have the thought occur to me. I don't know what that means. <laughs> like, <laughs> literally was like, oh, I should probably figure out what that means. Cause like, yeah. I literally didn't really know. I knew a lot about the Bible. I knew a lot about what churches said. I didn't know a whole lot about Jesus other than like, you know, a very big childhood, um, you know, orientation towards Jesus. But I think that there was a sense of, well, I should probably figure out what that means. And so, you know, I started where any good Protestant starts, which is in the Bible. And I, you know, start, and of course, because I'm a charismatic um, who believes in the active and intimate, you know, activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it was sloppy and experiential. And so, <laughs> you know, I remember I, th- I spent, just read the Gospels over and over and over again. Yes. And there were times when Jesus made me angry. Mm-hmm. and times when the stories I didn't understand and I thought is he being a jerk here and yeah. then there were moments when I was like I don't know if I fully understand this and what does this mean and what's the context for that and it really was an illuminating experience over and over again I began to study and began to learn and begin began to um, really spend a lot of time with the gospels and I have a really clear memory actually of um, one day sitting at my kitchen table and reading Luke chapter six, it's the Sermon on the Mount for people who are familiar with it. It's the one where Jesus is saying, blessed are the, the peacemakers, blessed are the meek, blessed are the ones who mourn. And of course, this is just the antithesis of a lot of the gospel I had been taught, right? And I remember just literally feeling angry, <laughs> you know, being like, I get it. I remember looking up at my husband and slamming my Bible shut and being like, this is good news. Yeah. No wonder, no wonder people chased after him. No wonder they threw their nets down and they ran after him. No wonder, no wonder women could not get enough of wanting to be near him. No wonder they broke open alabaster jars and threw themselves at his feet. No wonder children ran after this is good news. Yes. Yeah. And I almost felt ripped off. Because it was so beautiful. It was so reorienting. It was a life that was for things and beauty and goodness and justice and health and, and, and peace for people, but not in a way that let go of grief and suffering and darkness as well. That it was the wholeness of God that really, really drew me back. And so I think that that sense of saying, I mean, of course, you know, led me back to church for, you know, a, a very long time. And became part of my my life but i've still never been able to get over this sense of that north star of who jesus is yeah and i think that's so vitally important and what i've also been focusing on the past year is the gospels and what jesus said and like you said you went back to the bible and i know the bible though has been used as a source of oppression for so many and i want to hear a little bit how you wrestle and come to terms with that Um, because especially, I mean, the two key issues, I think the one that started by being more inquisitive and questioning is that whole woman thing. I've been, (laughs) I've been shocked in the, I mean, I came from, like I said, the Lutheran church, ELCA, where women, half the women were pastors. Then coming here, it's not a thing. 
And I never knew that until I came here. <laughs> so Jesus Feminist was your first book I read that my 16 year old also read. So I want to tell you, I want to know how, how you wrestled with that. Was that even a thing for you? What do you say to people that quote Paul and are like, yeah, of course women can't be elders and they need to be silenced. That's a lot, but I have to get, I have to like, <laughs> I have to put this on here because there's so many people that like, I'm just shocked that believe that, yeah, women can't do these things and shouldn't. And why does it matter? Well, I mean, a lot of the answer that I can give, and I think the time might be insufficient for some people. And, you know, I would certainly encourage them to go and, and pick up the book and, and actually, you know, engage with the text. Absolutely. But yes. I think that when people throw proof texts like that around, to me, it shows a profound lack of love and understanding for the Bible. Mm. And even in terms of Paul, um, one thing that I have learned is that I wish that people loved their Bible enough to read the whole thing, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> that's good. I'm going to quote you on that. That is a good, that's a good Instagram quote. <laughs> because I think that if Paul knew how the church has taken one or two lines from a couple of letters that he wrote to a specific church in a specific situation and context and had used that to bench and silence half the church at a time when the gospel is needing to be preached and embodied, mm -hmm. it would have broken his heart. I, I do agree. think that he worked alongside of women. He ordained women. He honored women. Um, he pastored alongside of women. He planted churches with women. Um, one of the favorite things I, I love, you know, for instance, people talk about how the uh, letter to the Philippians is just so incredibly tender and joy filled compared to the rest of them. That church was like an almost entirely pastored by women. <laughs> <laughs> and there was just a tenderness in Paul's tone and approach yes. with them. Um, you know, he referred to Junia as being chief among the apostles, the yes. apostle of apostles. And I mean, that's, that's Paul, let alone Jesus, right? Who just embodied and lived into a way of being that was whole yes. when it came to women. In a lot of ways, people will ask me, they'll say, how do you reconcile your Bible and your feminism? I'm like they are in cooperation. This is, I'm not a feminist despite the Bible or despite Jesus. It's because of Jesus. Yes. That if you yes. spend any amount of time with scripture, you begin to see the redemptive arc of justice that is in there. You begin to see how the needle is moving. You begin to see how um, countercultural the early church was and why it was so filled with women and slaves and children is because this was their safest place. Yes. And so in a lot of ways, it makes me sad that the church has moved from being at the forefront of what justice and shalom and equality could look like um, to now becoming like a bastion of the world system of patriarchy. Yes. That, that was never God's dream for us. Patriarchy was never God's dream for humanity. And Agreed. instead to see us turn around and use and twist sacred language in an effort to baptize something that is, in my opinion, part of the powers and principalities of this age uh, is really tragic. And you just said that again, but I loved it. You said it at Evolving Faith that Jesus made you a feminist. And I remember when you said that so clearly, because my daughter looked at me with the biggest smile on her face and was just said, these are my people, mom. <laughs> she just said, I'm so no, happy to hear that. <laughs> because, because being raised where she is, she is very, uh, she's a bit of an outcast in her beliefs. And it's like to see other people like 
that care and have these beliefs and think women can preach. It's just, it's not something we run across every day. So it was just so refreshing for her. And that's why I took her to the conference. Um, so tell me why going on this subject, and I know we could talk for hours about it, but what I encounter, why, why should people care? Like I have women friends that will say, well, it doesn't matter. I don't want to preach or like, why, why should we even care? Why, why is it not okay just to have it like it is? Women can still be effective in the children's department or lead Bible studies, but why does it, why should we care so much? Hmm. You know, it's, I understand when people say, say things like that, it means that things are okay for them. Yes, that's so good. Right? And I think that that notion is really opposite to what Jesus has called us to, which is looking at a life that is more than just what's okay for you. Mm-hmm. Um, in a lot of ways, I think that there is a sense of not being able to have um, empathy or eyes to see stories larger than your own. Um, I think that there are issues, obviously, of justice and equality and peacemaking, but even wholeness for the body of Christ, that it is something that heals. I also think that we're really missing something in our churches when women are not um, in visible positions of leadership and authority and um, influence, because then we are missing part of the image of God at the table. Yes. We are missing, I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel like I love and know and follow Jesus better when I hear how other people love and know and follow Jesus, especially people who are very different than me and have very different experiences of God and very different uh, backgrounds and cultures and ways of understanding. I can, it has opened up my love and depth and, and um, discipleship of Jesus. And so in a lot of ways, I think that when someone says it's okay for me, you're really embracing a very anemic and privileged and narrow view of God. And that, to me, is something that is worth kicking the supports out from underneath um, and pushing a little bit further in. I think that that notion of I'm good, so why bother is really anti the gospel. I would agree. And you saying that it's applicable to so many of the other things. Absolutely it is. Immigration, LGBTQ community, all of those things. Completely true. Why do I care? I'm not gay. Right. Right. <laughs> Why do I care? You know, right. it's just, and again, I think, it's like you you care because this is this is what the gospel is. This is what what God is. This is these are people made. I mean, I just I don't know. We're I gonna, know. You're going to get me preaching, and now we need no, to. No, I would, actually I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. I have to say I can't wait for your podcast to come out just because <laughs> I want to hear more preaching by you. Um, and I know, and we'll just touch on this because this is something another narrative, um, and it's going to be touchy. And this is my own fear of like talking about this because I know I'm going to lose listeners, but that's how God's working on me with the whole, the LG, uh, LGBTQ community. And for a while I probably was guilty of being like, it doesn't affect me. So I'm just going to stay out of that one. But as I'm deconstructing, I'm like, well, no, that's the, that's, that's not what the gospel is about. And so this is an issue I'm deconstructing and loving and talking about now. And I know you've walked that journey too, even when you got back in church and have had to leave a current church. Um, can you talk just a, just a little bit about that? Again, I know we could talk forever, but, but why that matters and why as believers we can't be, or as Jesus followers, we can't just make this a table, a small table that you're either in or out. I think that's right. what it comes down to, what we do. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the process... Um 
you know, for myself was a number of years ago. And I think that um, one of the things that even uh, Jen said when we were all together at Evolving Faith of if it's not good news for women and people of color and LGBTQ plus people and immigrants and people who do not live in your neighborhood, then it is not good news. Yes. And it's that simple. I mean, I think that the church has been very complicit in a tremendous amount of suffering. Um, We have placed very unholy burdens on very vulnerable people. Um, And so I think that the first place for a lot of people to start is to acknowledge and repent for that and to start by listening to those stories and not in a way that puts burdens on every queer person, you know, in your life where you're like, mm, please tell me all your darkest, deepest secrets. Right. It's like, right. no, that's not helping anybody. <laughs> it's like, right. You know, do, do some reading, do some studying, do some thinking, but do it not just from people who affirm your current opinion, um, but from people who are faithful. Yes. Um, one of the things that was a big, you know, red light for me um, when I began engaging with what I thought theologically about welcome and an open table and about what it means to fully welcome and include LGBTQ plus siblings to the body of Christ in full cooperation um, was something that we talked about a lot actually at Evolving Faith, which was you need to look at the fruit, yes. you know, of the tree that you learn a lot about the tree by the fruit. This is a parable of Jesus. And for me, there was this tremendous sense of the fruit of this theology of exclusion and reparative therapy and sin management and the language even that was used just continued to bear bad fruit. It, I mean, especially in a community that was so incredibly vulnerable, Mm -hmm. um, it just is heartbreaking, really. And so on the other side, you would see the fruit of welcome and inclusion and walking alongside of one another and following Jesus together just brought good fruit to literally everybody, (laughs) including those of us who are not themselves identifying in, in that way. I mean, it just is healing and restorative and good. Um, my, I feel like I, in a lot of ways, my experience with this um, is limited because, again, I'm straight, straight woman. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the best guides for us are in within those conversations. Like maybe I can be someone that opens the door for someone who maybe would not have considered it. Yes. But at the end of the day, I'd love to point people towards uh, leaders and teachers like Emmy Kegler, uh, who wrote a great book called One Coin Found. Um, mm-hmm. Jeff and, you know, and you know I'm having her. I've actually already interviewed oh, her. So oh, she, yes. great. You are, oh, she, oh, my gosh. I love she, her so much. You set that up perfectly because she'll be on the week after you. So thank oh, you. Excellent. She's a pastor's <laughs> pastor. I oh, love I, Emmy. I love her. Like, yeah. yes, I could go on and on, but yes, she is right. a, she's a good and faithful guide for people. She and she runs a whole community called Queer, Queer Grace. Jeff Chu wrote an amazing, more journalistic book about this, the interactions of religion and, um, and LGBTQ people called Does Jesus Really Love Me? That yes. was so beautiful. Um, there are just so many good um, guides and leaders for us yes. to follow and point towards that we are just really fortunate. We are at a great, yes. great time right now to learn. There's just so much, uh, so many good voices to put yourself at their feet and just yes. be like, teach me. And I think that's what we have to do. I mean, whether it's the LGBTQ, the immigrants, I mean, the refugees, like it's easy to sit from afar and say, that's wrong. That doesn't affect me. 
they're in, they're out, I'm in. But that is not the gospel. And we need to get in their stories and know and welcome. I mean, I have to tell you the most impactful thing probably ever. And we'll talk about the Evolving Faith Conference at the end of this because I want to give it a huge push for next year. But like I said, being very transparent, I have been struggling and deconstructing with the LGBT community and where I stand on that because I've been taught one thing all my life and now hearing stories and like, I don't, that's not, that's not it anymore. So hearing the stories at Evolving Faith was so impactful on me and just had some deep moments there. And at the end, when you had the open table for communion Mm -hmm. and I took communion from BT Hartman and I, and I was just like, Uh, my daughter knows, like just broke Mm -hmm. down. Like this is it right here. Like I just took communion from him. He, we are one, we are all, Jesus loves all of us equally. And we are all like at the table and we're all all in. in. And there's something remarkable to me when you Uh, are in community with people who have over and over been rejected or ostracized and yet they show up and are singing it is well with my soul and they are the ones serving it is the strength and the courage i mean i just might i could lay down on the floor and ball oh me too sarah i'm getting goosebumps thinking about it again i was like that was one of the top moments life-altering moments for me um So thank you for doing that and for putting all of that on. Let's talk about, I know we don't have a ton of time. There's so many things I'd love to talk about, but real quick, since we're talking about evolving faith, tell me how that came about that you, um, and I know it's hard topic because you and your dear friend, Rachel Held Evans um, came up with that, led the first one last year, but how did that come about that you decided to put this on? Um, Well, Rachel and I, um, we're friends for about 10 years. Um, and we did a lot of life alongside of each other. We wrote our books alongside of each other. We were often wrestling with very similar issues mm-hmm. and we're in the same lane together. And it was a great joy to us, um, to work like that. Um, and around the time when out of sorts came out and her book searching for Sunday came out, um, shortly after we were having a really good conversation about just how, about the conversations that we were kind of shepherding at the time, um, you know, through our books and through speaking and through social media and all those other kinds of ways that we kind of engage with people now. And I remember us looking at each other and saying, this is just not a season of life that the church shepherds really well. Hmm. And in a lot of ways we thought, what would it look like to just kind of get everybody in a room and just kind of be like, Hey, you're not alone. Hmm. And we, I mean, honestly, we didn't think really it, many people would show up mainly because this is, again, when you're in a season of deconstruction, like the idea of coming to a conference is not at the tippity top of the list, right? (laughs) Like, let alone with a bunch of Christians. And so in a lot of ways, you know, it's a community of people that are ungatherable. Um, And so we were like, well, let's just see what happens. And we don't really know. It was kind of almost an experiment, honestly, to begin with. I remember telling, we had a, our booking agent, Jim Chafee, um, handled all of our speaking engagements for both of us. And we, you know, looped him in to kind of help with, you know, a lot of the logistics and operations side of putting together an event like that. And I remember looking at him and saying, um, you know, do you think that maybe we'll get like 200 people? Do you think 200 people will come? <laughs> and him being like, don't be utterly ridiculous. We'll have at least 300. <laughs> and so that first event of having 1,600 people there just felt like wow. drinking from a fire hose. It was just a lot. Uh, we came home from that 
And Rachel and I looked at each other and we were like equal parts delighted and terrified, I think. Mm-hmm. Like we just didn't even know what, what to do. Um, and so that's when we sat down and really started to build out some plans for Evolving Faith. We um, invited Jeff Chu uh, to be a partner with us, which was literally the first thing on our list. He was just a tremendous leader, mm-hmm. very pastoral. And that was what we wanted to pursue for the gathering. We wanted it to be more about um, pastoring people well. We wanted to lean into spiritual formation and into ways to have people feel supported and loved in the wilderness um, as opposed to just wander on their own. And um, we built out this great big, lovely, you know, whole new, another event for this year and plans for podcasts and all sorts of things. And then um, of course, uh, Rachel got very sick in April and, and passed away in May. And that just kind of blew everything open. Um, And so, you know, I think that we wondered whether or not to keep going. I know I really grappled with whether or not I had the heart to do anything without her. Um, And so this evolving faith to me initially was just something to get through, Mm -hmm. um, to get on the other side of it was a milestone. I just needed to kind of get through, um, you know, just the amount of grief and loss and heartbreak that um, losing her has been for all of us, uh, especially for her family, for her husband, her children, her sister. Um, but then I was surprised by how healing it was, that it was a, all, it was harder than I ever could have imagined, but it was also way more beautiful and um, prophetic and redemptive. And in a lot of ways, continuing to shepherd this um, has been healing. And I'm, I'm, you know, taking all these plans that Rachel and I made and saying, okay, I think we're going to do this um, is almost like being able to hold your grief and your hope at the same time. And I think that that's mm-hmm. the exercise of what we are wanting and the posture that we want to have, I think, in, in all of these conversations is one that doesn't lean so hard into the grief that it forgets to hope, yeah. but neither one that is so naive that it doesn't continue to hold on to the heartbreak or the suffering that also is present, but still holds on to joy and hope and the resistance of those things. Yes. And that's so much, like you just said, of your own narrative, like holding on to the suffering, but also to the hope or to holding on to the anger, but also to the joy, like Jesus can take it all and it's all, it's all okay. And I think that story of you persevering through evolving faith and what it, what the outcome was is such an example. Um, and there were a lot more than a couple hundred people there this year. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it continued to grow. I think we had 2,500 there and plus yes. the live stream. And I and think so, that we want to um, be tender with that. Right. And, and yes. still stay very close, um, you know, to people's stories yes. to really honor them. We really um, strongly value uh, the idea of, of a posture of listening and belonging. Um, Rachel and I always saw ourselves as leaders, as not as people who were going to be on a pedestal or going to be your follow me into the battle kind of person. Mm-hmm. We always saw ourselves as just fellow travelers. We saw ourselves mm-hmm. as those who were alongside of you, Andrea, not someone who was like this way to freedom, you know, <laughs> like you have your path and I trust the Holy yeah. spirit in your life. And it might look different than mine. Um, and my role is to be alongside of you as a companion. And so I think cultivating that space in that posture will be difficult because I mean, a lot of us are preconditioned to want the big leader, right. but we're the worth wrestling for. Well, I'll say again, the way you ended the conference with 
the leaders, the speakers coming and serving communion was such an example of that and so powerful. So I'm glad I, it, it really, it really very much was. So thank you for going through and putting on that conference. And I know next year it will be in Texas. You're bringing it back on down to the yeah, Bible Belt. <laughs> we are. We're heading to Houston this time. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and we will have, I'll put links to that information um, and, and to your website and all of that. And today we've just really touched on um, your book out of sorts. And I will put links to that because I encourage people to read that no matter where you are in your journey. If you're just starting to question a few things, or if you're really in deconstruction, or if you really don't even know what deconstruction means, I think you should read the book too. (laughs) (laughs) That's high high praise. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I know you have a new book out called Miracles and Other Reasonable Things that I just about finished last night. Loved it. Um, And I I just want people to read all of your books. Can you tell us, just give us an overview of that because in that book, there's a whole other chapter, several chapters of your life story. Can you just highlight the storyline of that? book for folks? Uh, sure. Um, okay. Well, I mean, Miracles just came out um, like a week on, or two like ago. A week ago yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So it's still in early days. Um, I think that this this is a lot more personal of a book. My first two books were more, here's this theological idea I want to wrestle with, and I'm going to do that through storytelling. And this is more story, right? This yes. is more, and it's about um, just the experiences of the last few years. Um, I was in a bad car accident and really came face to face with what I believed about healing and miracles, um, what it means to thrive, what it means to be healed, what's the difference between um, how we talk about miracles versus how we experience them. Um, and so this moment of healing, it kind of, you know, it's, it's, it takes me to Rome and meet the Pope. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I think good um you know, points where people can kind of find themselves connecting or find those sorts of things. But really, at the end of the day, it's about what it means to live with both grief and faith, Mm, to be someone who still holds on to um, joy and suffering, Um, what it means to, I think, lean into and what makes us whole in the midst of ordinary suffering in particular. Uh, I think that sometimes, you know, we, we will almost tuck ourselves out of our own traumas because they don't stack up to other people's. Um, You'll say, well, what about so-and-so? I have no right to be, you know, sad or upset or, you know, whatever else. And so instead of having this path of ordinary miracles of what it means to develop hope, even though there's a lot of evidence to the contrary um, and how we do that in our ordinary right now, walking around sort of lives. Yes. And I love how you say, oh, I just went to see the Pope and, you know, (laughs) as one does. (laughs) I mean, besides that part of the story, I think other, we will find it very relatable to, like you said, just the suffering in this life. And when Jesus doesn't answer prayers and when he does, but the miracles and everyday things that we often overlook is so powerful too. Mm -hmm. Story. Um, There's so many powerful aspects to it. And we will put links to that book out of sorts, Jesus Feminist, all of them. And then also talk real quick about Field Notes, which I subscribe to and love. Oh, thank um, you. Yes, love it. Um, I, I started subscribing right on the tails of when it was free, and then it you started charging a very minimal amount, but it's so worth it. So tell a little bit about Field Notes and where folks can check that out and subscribe and find you on your website and all of that good stuff. Yeah, sure. Well, if someone just goes to sarahbessie.com, all the links for everything are there, Evolving Faith and for Field Notes. Field Notes is a, a weekly newsletter that I do 
do now um, that is just crammed full of, you know, everything from TV shows. There's an exclusive essay just for the, you know, people to be able to have access to, you know, I did, I blogged for like 15 years and um, one of the things I loved the most about blogging was connecting with readers and was kind of this almost it was felt like a conversation that went two ways. And so in a lot of ways, um, you know, when blogging kind of, you know, shifted and changed and the Internet, of course, always move is moving along and moving forward. Um, you know, and writing books is fantastic. But, you know, at the same time, it's also very solitary. And, you know, you, you do that work in your house and you send it out. And, you know, now it's starting to land in people's laps and it's great. You know? mm-hmm. But in a lot of ways, uh, Field Notes is kind of a way to stay connected more often, right? Yeah. And there's, you know, we can interact and we have, you know, have comment sections and, you know, wrestle with ideas and talk about everything from, you know, uh, new books that we're reading and, um, you know, recipes, but also, you know, what we think about atonement and what we think about, you know, it just kind of runs the gamut from silly to serious to deep to light. And I think that it's a lot of fun. It is so much fun. And it kind of brings you back old school a little bit, you know, like you said, back to the, like, we can type this out in real time and connect and engage. And yes, it's so good. So I encourage people to check out your website for that information, read your books, all of that. Sarah, thank you so much. Like really, I can't thank you enough for just taking this time. I know it's a busy season for you with your book launch, just coming off of the conference. And um, I just appreciate you and your voice so much. Thank you. I've really enjoyed our conversation, Andrea. Thank you for coming and for trusting us with your daughter. That means a Uh, lot to me. Yes, we will. I'll be back next year with my husband. (laughs) Good. (laughs) He can hang hang out with my husband. (laughs) That would be fantastic because my husband is an extrovert too, and I'm an introvert like you, and that is just a lot of people for me, but (laughs) but we can do it. So I look forward to it next year. All right. Sounds good. Have a good day. All right. You too, Sarah. Bye-bye. Sticking with us and listening with an open heart and mind to our conversation. I hope Sarah's story of wrestling with core issues can be an example to you of how to walk courageously through your own tough questions in your faith journey. My intention is not to make you question Jesus or your faith more, but rather to make you lean into Jesus more and look to Him as the ultimate example of how to love and include others. I really encourage you to dive in deeper to Sarah's books on the topics we discussed. As I mentioned, I'll put links to her books and the Evolving Faith Conference we talked about on the show notes at HerStorySpeaks.com. 